It is good to see you here today. Uh, after being out last week, we had a, a nice little couples weekend away and are grateful for that time. And uh, some of you have asked about Jackie today. She and the boys are headed back from, they took a little trip uh, to just uh, get away. And this was, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but it, several of you asked about her, so I'm just going to tell you for the fun of it. <laughs> this was one of those trips where the boys are 17 and 19. So they're at that age and stage where you want them to learn to begin to have some of the freedoms of an adult, but you can't totally turn them loose in New York City. But Jackie's tried to really be smart about, you know, giving them some opportunities. So, like, one of the deals was Jackie and Jacob, the youngest, went up on Wednesday, and Morgan flew up by himself on Thursday, which was a big step. You know, he had never done that before. And uh, the... Morgan going up went smoothly. little hiccup getting Jackie and Jacob up there because she was trying to give him some freedom in the Atlanta airport to go get something to eat. And the next thing she knows, she gets a phone call and he says, Mom, I got on a bus thinking that it was supposed to take me back to you. And now I'm like outside of security at the airport and I'm a long ways from you. And she's like, get back on that same bus and get back here. And he calls back in a little while. She's checking in with me all the while. And he's like, where are you, Mom? Because I got back on that bus and I don't see you. And she's like, I'm in front of Outback. And he goes, there is no Outback. And and she said, what gate are you in front of? And he said, uh, 122. And she's like, well, you left me at 73. So you better get back on another bus. They they linked up and they, after a lot of missed flights and stuff, made their way on, on to uh, New York and had another little adventure getting Jacob lost on a bicycle in New York City by himself. But got him back to the airport but the last thing she texted me last night as I was in the bed and they had gone to a show and and were on their way back and she said we're in the subway and we're going to have to connect to another subway to get back and she said but we were in a car that we couldn't see what stop we were at and we couldn't hear and at the last moment after we had stopped she said I heard a guy next to me say yeah this is 14th street and she goes oh guys this is our stop and she steps out at the last second and the doors close with the boys still inside and it's like (laughs) <laughs> and they headed off into the night <laughs> in New York City. So, Mary, if you get Jacob back, hang on to him. <laughs> now they'll be flying home today. All, all is well. But uh, it's been a, been a good week away, and it's good to be together here today. We are in a series, if you haven't been here lately, we're in a series entitled Simplify. This is nothing but good news. And uh, what we have talked about in the first three installments, the first week we just talked about how it's just reality for every one of us in life that there are people and experiences that drain your bucket, they drain your life, they suck you dry, and there are others who make deposits into you who refill your personal bucket, and you are at your best when your bucket is full, and you are at your worst when your bucket is empty, and it is up to us to recognize the people and the disciplines and things that refill our buckets. And then the the two weeks that followed, we talked about just in real practical terms, if you're going to simplify your life, first of all, You're going to have to address your schedule because the cry of the unsimplified life is I'm overwhelmed, I'm overstressed, I'm overscheduled, I'm exhausted, I'm confused, I'm just, life is too much for me. And so we said, you know, particularly you're going to have to press into looking at where you're investing your time and what's eating up your time and how do you rearrange your schedule. And then two weeks ago in the last message, we talked about how the other part of getting past a lot of the stress and sense of being overwhelmed is you've got to look at your finances that it's financial decisions and and debt and all the things related to that that wind up putting us in places where we feel so overwhelmed. And and we looked that day at at some of the changes that we need to make in order to find real freedom and relief there. Well, today we're going to take a bit of a different approach. 
Rather than tackling one of these specific areas, the thing that I want to press in on today is getting a good, clear look at what it is that we're simplifying our lives around. It's one thing to say, I'm just overwhelmed, there's just too much going on, and I've got to simplify my life. I've got to cut out some things, I've got to cut out some commitments, I've got to cut out some spending so that I can simplify my life. Well, that's great, that's helpful, but it's not exceedingly helpful unless you're simplifying your life around something. It's not enough just to cast off some things. What you have to do is to be sure that you simplify your life around the things that really do matter. This is about recognizing that you were designed. You didn't just happen. You were designed by an all-wise creator who has a plan for your life. He knows how he wired you, and he knows what's going to be fulfilling for you in life. He knows what you were made for, and you need to have your life simplified so that you can now home in on the things that really matter. And so today is going to be a big picture look at five of the things that matter most in life. That when we talk about simplifying your life, these are the things that we want to simplify and wrap our lives around. You ready to go with that? And to simplify that, I'm going to give it to you in five words that start with the letter G, hopefully to help you remember that. So these are sort of the five G's of a simplified life. And the first G that we're going to talk about is the word grace. And grace means that I must accept the undeserved love and forgiveness of God. It's kind of good news to realize that Life doesn't begin, and Christian life doesn't begin, with me making a commitment to try harder and, and fly straighter. That it all starts with God's love, God's acceptance, God reaching out when I don't deserve to be loved or reached out to. Paul tells us in Titus 3.5, He saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, But because of his mercy, he washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. It really is worth knowing and remembering that essentially every other religion on earth other than Christianity has at its core a fundamental concept. It gets expressed in different ways, but they have in common this basic idea that essentially there is a gigantic ladder extending from us up to heaven or to God or to nirvana or whatever the goal is. And the purpose of religion is to train us to climb the ladder. And so to that end, all other religions teach you what their routine is for how you get up the ladder. You've got to bow toward Mecca. You've got to pray five times a day. You've got to light candles. You've got to abstain from these things. You can't have alcohol. You can't have caffeine. You've got to do all of these things because these things help you climb up the ladder to become the human being you were meant to be, to get you closer to heaven or God or whatever the desired end is. All religions are telling you to climb, work harder, do more, to get up the ladder. Are you starting to feel a little stressed by the thought of that? There's more that you need to do to be a better person and get up the ladder. And the good news is Christianity stands in stark contrast to that. Because in Christianity, a radical new concept is revealed, and it is that we can't hope to climb the ladder. That instead, Christ himself 
descends the ladder. God comes down to us. I was reading an article. It actually was a serious article, believe it or not. It sounds like science fiction several months ago about how there are scientists today who are working on the orig- the, just the, the basic concepts for a space elevator. When I read that headline, I was like, I've got to read about this. I'm a science nerd anyway. And, and they're serious. They want to build an elevator that would extend all the way up to, like, the space station, to a, a platform that would remain in place. So it would need to be like 150 miles high. The problem with that is there's no material on earth that exists yet. It has yet to be invented anything that's light enough and strong enough that you could construct something so that rather than having to use rockets to get stuff out there into orbit that you could take an elevator up to it. Man, that sounds crazier than Buck Rogers, doesn't it? Well, you know, we're not talking about an elevator that would get you there. I want you to envision a ladder that would get you there. And as impossible, and I'm reading that article and I'm thinking, that ain't happening in my lifetime or my grandchildren's lifetimes. We're never going to be able to do that. That's, that's wishing for a little too much. Well, I'll tell you what's wishing for a lot more than an elevator that would get you out into the heavens is the idea that you could climb a ladder up into the heavens. The scriptures make it clear that all of us are, figuratively speaking, at the base of such a ladder. But there's two problems. One, this ladder isn't a 24-foot ladder. It's not a mile high. It truly would extend, so to speak, into the heavens. And the problem is we're at the base of that with two broken arms and two broken legs. We are all broken people. Sin has absolutely left us powerless to work our way to God or to heaven or to become what we're supposed to be. And all of our effort to get there essentially boils down to all of us gathering as a crowd around that ladder. And some bold, strong-willed souls get in there and with their knees and their elbows and what remains of their limbs that are are broken and, and fouled up, work their way about two or three rungs up the ladder and go, look at the progress that I'm making. And it's like, woohoo, bully for you. You're a step or two above us. You got about 150 miles to go. Good luck with that. That's what human effort to get right with God will do for you. You never can get there. And that's the beauty of Christianity. It's not about our effort. It's about God's grace. It's not more to do. It's a recognition of what God has done. Paul sums it up in Romans 5, 6 by saying, When we were utterly helpless, when we were broken and at the base of the ladder and could do nothing to save ourselves, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came. Everybody say, Christ came. He's coming down the ladder. Christ came at just the right time, and he died for us sinners. When did that reality first dawn on you? When did it first click for you that you can't be good enough? That you're hopelessly lost and undone and you can't possibly work your way to God? When did that click for you? You see, that's half the equation for salvation. You've got somebody halfway home. If you can get them to the point that they realize that they are lost and broken, completely crippled by their sin. Now, you're not saved the moment that you realize that, but now you actually can be saved. Because you you can't get right with God until you realize how wrong with God you are. As long as you think you can climb the ladder and get yourself to where you need to be, you can never be right with God. 
You're just over there with broken legs and broken arms trying to nub your way to the top, and you'll never get there. And there's no help or hope for you until you realize how hopelessly lost you are. When did you first realize that? Now, I said that doesn't get you saved. It just gets you ready to be saved. Once we realize that, then we can accept the fact that Jesus has descended the ladder. Jesus has given his life for ours. He's come to help us in our point of need. And with his death and resurrection, he has provided a way so that we can can now, when he comes to us and offers his forgiveness, we can by faith receive that. I mean, our part is we're just the helpless bums at the base of the ladder saying, help me. I can't help myself. And Jesus says, I have. I've come down, I've paid the price for your sins, I've done everything to make you well, and if you'll ask me, I'll come now and I'll heal you, I'll forgive you, I'll set things right for you. All you have to do is trust me to do that, and ask me to do that, and I will. That's grace. That's grace. It's getting that when you didn't deserve it, and you didn't deserve it any more than I did. The error for many of us, the trap, is that we think, oh, but I've got to be better. I've got to, I've got to start cleaning up my act. I've got to start flying right so that then God can save me. As long as you're thinking that, you can't be saved. The only way to get saved is to realize you're helpless and to ask Jesus to come and by his grace do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. It all starts with grace. Can you remember when that happened in your life? Can you remember the first time you received that? Now, you may not remember the date. I remember when it was for me. It was February of 1976. It's okay if you don't remember the day that that happened. It it can be a process of getting to that point, just like falling in love can be a process. The person that you marry and spend the rest of your life with, you probably spent some weeks or, or months or years discovering that they were the one and how much you loved them. But the key is there had to be a moment in time where it did dawn on you, this reality, this thing that you couldn't measure and yet it was real. But there had to be a moment in time when you said yes I do love you, I believe that you love me, and I commit my life to you, and I receive your love, and in a moment of time, you are now married. And in the same way, there has to be a moment in time when you receive the love and grace of God that you don't deserve, but you ask for that, and you commit to love Him. And from that point forward, you're His. You're forgiven, and His grace covers not only all your screw-ups of the past, not only all of my failures today, but everything you and I will ever blow tomorrow and any day in the future. Isn't that good news? That is just wonderful relief to know that He loves us that much. Now, I know a thing that haunts people because I hear people talk about it is, but what if you just don't know? What if you can't remember the moment or you just still struggle with knowing whether or not it's real in your life? I don't have time to camp on that thought. That's a sermon for another day. The little book of 1 John is all about that issue of how you can know. But I'm just going to mention two things that kind of help you to discern, have I received the grace of God in my life personally? Two simple ways to just recognize on a day-to-day basis. And it's a good thing to examine. Paul said to the Corinthians that you should examine yourselves. You ought to test yourselves all along to see if you're in the faith. Here's two simple tests. If I am truly a recipient of the grace of God, then I should ask myself, am I becoming a more gracious person toward others? If I've received grace, I ought to be giving more grace. Now, it's definitely a fact that you don't just suddenly become gracious because you receive the grace of God. It takes a while, doesn't it? 
It is a process. But Ephesians 4, 2 describes very well what this looks like over time. He says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Can I just tell you that by my nature, that is not who I was. That is not who I would be today. By my nature, I would be the impatient person who likes people who like me. Who enjoys people who agree with me and who think that I'm right. And in my nature, I would hate stupid people or people who disagree with me. Can you relate? Paul said, when you've received the grace of God, something changes inside of you. And with the passing of time, you find yourself... Not needing to straighten everybody else out, but being humble and gracious and willing to put up with other people's foolishness. Not always having to straighten everybody else out. Not always having a sharp tongue. Being gentle and patient. Putting up with each other's faults. You know, the simplest place to test whether you're actually growing in the measure of, in this matter of grace is in your family. Are you being patient with your spouse? Are you being patient with your kids? Are you showing grace as evidence of the fact that you received grace? And the other simple test is, do I have the desire and make the effort to share the grace of God and the love of God with other people around me? In other words, if I've received the forgiveness of God and the grace of God in my life, it is just natural that I want other people that I care about to get in on that. Don't you agree? That we become ambassadors of that. That's what Paul said. You know, it's God now speaking through us because he lives in us. Then he's the one saying through us, come and and be made right with God. Receive his forgiveness. That doesn't mean that we're all perfect witnesses and that we consistently do it all the time. But the desire is, is there. Do you have that desire to share the grace of God? Everything in life, everything in the Christian life revolves around grace other than the word love there is no more important word in all the scriptures than grace it's the undeserved love and favor of god we receive it and so we now can relate to others in the same way it's a great simplifier i now don't have to do all these things to earn god's love by faith i receive his grace the second g is the word growth That I must learn increasingly to recognize and yield to the Holy Spirit's voice. Now that may not sound like a great revelation to you. I want to tell you, this is huge. Because I am convinced that many of us, maybe most of us, come into the Christian experience, or maybe even the pre-Christian experience, maybe some are seekers, or at the point that we were seekers, we sort of come into the whole Christian community situation and look around and realize, oh, I see what this is about. These are good people. These are decent people. They act right, so I've got to do some behavior modification. I've got to learn to act right like them. I've got to get better at some things. I mean, I look around this room today. It's a good-looking bunch of people. Y'all look like you've got it wired together. I bet you always get along with your spouse. I bet you have 2.5 children, and their teeth are all good, and they get along with each other, and you never have to spank them, and... I am sure none of you have had a spat on the way to church. I just bet you all have got it wired together. And I'm going to try hard to be more like you. 
I mean, I'm being a little silly with that, but you get where I'm coming from. The church experience, when you come into it, it's very tempting to look at it as, oh, yeah, these are good people. They don't curse, and they don't get mad, and they're not ugly <laughs> when they're at church. You know what I'm talking about. We, we are all, For 60 or 90 minutes, we can all hold it in the box well enough to look decent. And so we can look at this and say, I get it. Christianity is about learning to modify my behavior so I look more like you do on Sunday morning. And I'll have to work at that behavior modification. Well, good luck with that. That's not Christianity, and it doesn't work. My undergrad work umpteen years ago was in psychology, so we studied a lot about behavior modification. And there there are behaviors that we can modify by rewarding the good and punishing the bad. And you know, the basics of how behavior modification works. But in my senior level research, I remember the uh, subject area that I did intensive stuff in wasn't fun, but it, it was... Uh, about sexually deviant people, people who are criminally sexually deviant. And it was very eye-opening and discouraging all at the same time to read about this, that people who commit sexual crimes, rapists and pedophiles, that it really doesn't matter what form of behavior modification that you use on them. It's virtually impossible to change the behavior. The, the long and short of it is, and, and these are the statistical facts, you can punish the crime... You can lock them up for a day, a month, a year, ten years. It doesn't change the numbers. Eighty-five percent, when they're released, even if it's ten or fifteen years later, will go back and will commit the same or similar crimes again. Because there is no form of behavior modification that will change such a fundamental flaw in the heart. Exterior behavior modification doesn't work for core issues of the heart. Now, that's really depressing, isn't it? Well, it's just a reflection of a reality that we all need to grasp. Behavior modification is not the answer. But we can clean up certain things. I, I can clean up attitude or language or whatever you know the struggle is enough to look good for a little while to the people who only see me for an hour or two a week. We could all say that, right? The problem is some folks live with you. And work around you and see the real person that you are. And you can't, through behavior modification, change your heart. You can't fundamentally change who you are. So the only way to begin to deal with that is it's going to take a power greater than you living in you. And the good news is, as a follower of Christ, you get that in the person of the Holy Spirit. He comes to live inside you. And it is your ability to connect with him to hear his voice and to tap into his power is the only hope that you have to change the basic fundamental flaws that you have now we may not be a room full of sexual perverts and pedophiles hopefully we're not but the truth of the matter is we're just as broken amen it's it feels good to point to people who've got sins that we don't struggle with and go they're the sickos and pretend like we're not so messed up but the truth of the matter is our souls are cesspools apart from the grace of god and there's stuff about us that we can't change apart from the Holy Spirit's power. And so the fundamental issue in spiritual growth is not figuring out, okay, how can I act more like these people around me? It's not about putting on an act. It is about growing in a relationship 
with Christ by learning to know and hear and respond to the voice of the Spirit of Christ that's in me. Peter said in 2 Peter 3.18, But grow, everybody say grow, but grow in the grace, there's our two words, grow in grace, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I used to think that that translated to, that means go to church and read your Bible. Well, those are two really good practices. We ought to do those things. But I'll tell you what I have discovered. That's not nearly enough. And at the heart of the matter, that isn't really the top of the list. That the number one thing in growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus is learning to know the voice of Jesus as he speaks by his spirit directly to me. Now, a nice perk is he'll often speak in a situation like this. I hope you hear God speak through me. A lot of times when I'm teaching, I hope, hope that God's voice speaks through something that you encounter here. When you read the Bible, I hope you hear the voice of God speaking to you. But understand, it's not just in the 5 or 10 or 15 minutes that you're reading the Bible or in the hour that you're at church hearing somebody preaching. All week long, the Holy Spirit is speaking and guiding you. Jesus said that this was the pattern of his life. You want to see a picture of the ultimate simplified life? It's Jesus. He said in John 5:19, this is how I live my life. I tell you the truth, the Son, speaking of himself, the Son can do nothing alone. The Son does only... There's simplicity. The son does only what he sees his father doing. Because the son does whatever the father does. I used to read that and think, what in the world is he talking about? The son can't do anything by himself. He only does what his father does. Here's exactly what he's saying. When Jesus, God the son, eternally existent God, Jesus comes to earth, the scripture says he emptied himself. He laid aside a lot of what had been his as God to take on human form. But when he was 30 years old and was about to step out into the ministry that that he had come for, there was that day, on the day he was baptized, that the Holy Spirit... Now, we serve one God who is always three persons. They had lived in perfect fellowship from eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when Jesus came to earth, there was a level at which he disconnected himself from part of what had been his as God in coming to earth. And he needed that lifeline back in place. And on the day he was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended and came to fill Jesus. The Holy Spirit becomes like a pipeline connecting whatever's going on in heaven, whatever's going on in the heart and mind of God, so that Jesus as a human could be tied to that. That wasn't the first time that had happened. The Holy Spirit had come upon many different prophets and kings, anointed men, judges in the Old Testament different individuals that needed that connection to God. Jesus needed that. And from that point forward, he had an ability to dial into what God was thinking, what God the Father was thinking and saying and wanting to do. You know, the last passage that I taught two weeks ago, it was that familiar passage where Jesus is with the crowd going through Jericho, and there's Zacchaeus, the little short tax collector, up in a tree. Jesus didn't know that guy. He didn't get a memo in advance. Hey, there's going to be a really wicked man, little runt of a man up in a tree. You need to have lunch with him. No, Jesus is walking along just like you or I do through any day. And as he sees this guy up in a tree, his first thought is probably, that's kind of weird. Grown man climbing a tree. That's that's probably kind of a weird guy there. But something happened in that moment. He got some impression. Maybe he saw a picture in his mind. This is how the Spirit often works. Sometimes it's a gentle impression. Sometimes it's a word. Sometimes it's an image. I have a feeling in that moment 
Jesus probably, as he looked at that man, saw an image of just sitting down and having a meal with that guy. That's kind of weird. Man in a tree, and yet, you know, suddenly in a moment of time, I'm seeing myself sitting across the table from this guy. Oh, wait a minute. I know what that is. I think that may be the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, he and I need to sit down and have a talk, break bread together. What's that guy's name? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree because today I need to go to your house. We need to eat together. I think that's exactly how things played out for Jesus when he said, hey, the son can't do anything on his own. In other words, hey, while I'm on earth, I'm just a man apart from the life of God. So I have to do whatever I see the father doing. And so when I get an impression or a word or a picture, just an, an image that I realize is the voice of the spirit saying a word to me, that's just what I step into right now. This is what growth looks like in the Christian life. You can accumulate Bible knowledge until the day that you die and be a mean, sorry person. I know some of them. I say it over and over. Some of the best people I know go to church and read their Bibles, and some of the meanest people I know go to church and read their Bibles. So you have to kind of get over categorizing everybody together. It's not enough to go to church and read your Bible. We have to be a people who are dialed into what the Holy Spirit is saying so that we walk in lockstep with Him and what He's saying and doing. And it makes all the difference in the world. In practical terms, it means that I prioritize listening above everything else. That has been an incredibly difficult thing for me. I'm a doer. And how my to-do list is read my Bible and say my prayers. And I tend to do most of the talking when I say my prayers. And growing in the grace and knowledge of God involves reading my Bible and it involves saying my prayers. But at the top of that list is listening for and responding to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Paul, in trying to explain how important this is in 1 Corinthians 2, said, No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's Spirit, not the world's Spirit, so we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given to us. When we begin to learn to speak the language of the Holy Spirit and to recognize the ways that the Spirit speaks to us, Christianity moves from being a religion and a tiresome list of things to do and change into being such an exciting and dynamic relationship that's personal and it's real and it's uplifting and it's just good. Can I just give you one really current personal example of how dialing into what the Spirit is saying makes all the difference in the world? And I'm going to tell you on the front end, I am sharing this by permission because I've lived long enough to know when you share a Something within the family, you better have permission or you're going to pay the price for that. This one's about Jackie. She's not here, but I'm, I'm telling you this with permission. One of the things that has been an unfolding reality for us in the last 22 months since we have been married that I did not see coming in advance. I, I, I love being married to Jackie, and it has been a good thing. It's been a, a huge blessing. But it has not been without challenges. And one of the biggest challenges that I did not see coming in advance is something that has happened to her again and again that I don't have any way of preventing or safeguarding. If you know me well, if you've been around and know my story, it won't surprise you to know. There are some people in this community who don't like me. Big shocker. 
Part of, I mean, I'm sure there are people who don't like me for a variety of reasons, but the most popular reason that I know of is because I'm divorced. And I have been wicked enough to not only be divorced, but continue to preach the gospel as a divorced man. And, I mean, all kidding aside, there are just a number of people in our community who think that I am a living abomination. That a divorced man would continue to stand and preach the gospel. How dare he? Now, we can all shake our heads and laugh about that. That's, that's exactly how certain people feel. And I'm not telling you that for you to feel, feel sorry for me. There are people who hate you too. I mean, we, we, all, we all get that. We've all got haters. It's just, after I got divorced, my list of people who hate me got longer. It got quite a bit longer. The thing that I never really gave much thought to or, or had much appreciation for was the fact that the moment that Jackie married me 22 months ago, a bunch of people who don't know her, who have never had a personal encounter with her, instantly decided that they hate her. For one simple reason. Because she's married to me and they hate me. Now, all of us, at some level, struggle with anybody hating us or not liking us. It's just not fun to have people not like you. And I don't know, maybe it's a man thing or whatever, but we just learn to suck it up and deal with it. And it's like, you get it. I mean, to this day, there are people, I'll go in certain places or on the street where people are just unpleasant or they, you know, snub me. And I know where it comes from most of the time. And I've learned to be thick enough skinned about that or whatever to deal with it my own way and go on and not let it ruin my day. But the thing that I did not appreciate was how much that would affect Jackie. That she suddenly feels like she lives in a world, because I pastor in a, a larger church and there are a lot of people who know my name or know me by reputation or whatever because I preach to a lot of people on a weekly basis. That she feels like everywhere she goes that she's now surrounded by people that may know who she is, if nothing else, as my wife. And that a certain percentage of those people automatically don't like her because she's my wife. And she's a mercy by nature. And they feel things really deeply. And so the net effect of all this is this terrible feeling of like, there are all these people out there who don't like me, and I don't even know who they are until we bump into somebody, and they're usually they're ugly to me, and she just happens to be there to witness it. And, and so she just feels this yuck, like, wow, there are all these people who don't like me, and they don't even know me. Now, whether that sounds logical or, or crazy to you, it's very real, and she has felt it so acutely, and particularly in the last month, that feeling has just pressed in on her. I, I really, in the last month, have just been pressing in in prayer over her because at times it just leaves you at the point of just wanting to, to run away and go, good grief, wouldn't it be easier to just live somewhere else than deal with that foolishness? And it had just been so heavy on her in the last month of just feeling like, I don't even know who my supposed enemies are. and I, I mean, how do, you can't fix that. How do you respond to that? People who don't know you and still they don't like you. What are you going to do with that? And she just felt this pressing in on her. And Monday morning of this week, as she's just not knowing what to do with that and really just needing to hear God, and what, what do I do with this? Monday morning, I had come and met my guys for a 6.30 time up here, and I'm driving back from that, and I get a text from her. And she is so fired up. Let me just tell you why. She had walked into our bathroom, and on the counter on the side of the bathroom where her sink is, there's a scrap of paper, just a little torn scrap of paper that's lying there. And it's written in, in a pen in handwriting that doesn't belong to her. It's clearly not mine or hers 
or either of the boys. Can't identify the handwriting. And on it is just a scripture reference from Isaiah 41, some specific verses from Isaiah 41. She has no idea how that got on her counter. I didn't put it there. Neither of the boys put it there. Nobody had been in our home. And yet right there where she couldn't miss it on her counter next to her sink is this scripture reference. So she pulls out her Bible and this is what she reads, the, the exact reference. You are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. So do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you, oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear. I will help you. She texted me, excited, said, do you know where this came from? I said, I don't know where it came from, but I know who put it there. <laughs> it wasn't an earthly hand that put that there. Now, God speaks in a variety of ways. Sometimes he needs to speak loudly enough that he'll just airdrop something right in our laps where we can't miss that it was him. Sometimes he's more subtle than that. But the bottom line is this. There is nothing more important in your life and in your spiritual growth than learning to discern what God is saying. It was like a light bulb coming on for Jackie to just hear a word from God. When she's feeling all this yuck of, of stuff pressing in on her and then to hear God say, You may feel rejected and unloved by people, but I haven't rejected you. I have loved you and all the people that you don't even know how to respond to. You don't have to worry about them. I'll take care of them and I will uphold you by my right hand. God is good. And there's nothing that matters more than hearing the voice of the Spirit and the variety of ways that he speaks. The third thing I'll mention in these last three are very, very brief. Is groups. When I simplify my life around the things that matter most, I must take the time to live in Christian community. Never forget the fact that God has eternally lived in community. He is one God, but He has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in perfect fellowship and community. When He created man, He said it's not good for Him to be alone. He designed us to need to live in community. And when the church was birthed, immediately... Christian community began to just spring up all over. We, in the Western American mindset, we tend to think in terms of rugged individualism, and we think of that spiritually. It's all about me and my quiet time with God and how I take a stand for God and how I pray and what I do. And the truth of the matter is, Christianity is little about I and much about we. Let me say that again. Christianity is little about I and me, it is much about we and us. It is about the community of faith, the family of faith. Jesus never called anybody to be a spiritual only child. And someone who claims to come into a relationship with God and yet has no connection to God's family should seriously question whether they belong to God. 
because the two don't go together. The invitation to become a follower of Christ is an invitation to live in community with the brothers and sisters that he has called you to live alongside. When the church was birthed in Acts 2, it says, immediately describing their life, it says the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They did that each day in the temple courts. They didn't have New Testaments to read. It hadn't been written yet. So they went and heard firsthand from the guys who would write the words of the New Testament. What Jesus had taught, what he said. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching there in the temple courts. To the community. That didn't mean they went out finding civic projects to, to tackle. That word means literally the fellowship. To the shared life with the other believers. They devoted themselves to the community. They devoted themselves to their shared meals together. Realizing the importance of just table time. And to their prayers together. Every day they met together in the temple and they ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and what? Simplicity. That sounds like what we've been talking about. It was a very simple life for them. They would get together each day and they would hear the teachings of Jesus from the apostles. And then they would break up and they'd go into homes and they would eat together and they would talk about what God was saying and doing and learning to recognize what it means to be a follower of Christ and living in community together where it said they would take care of each other and they would supply each other's needs living in community. We have come to a point in time where it has become increasingly popular in American culture to disconnect from organized religion and to once again make Faith, a purely personal matter, it's just between you and God. And that was never what Jesus invited us to. He always invited us to be a part of the family of God. Yes, you have a personal relationship with God, but it is something that is always to be lived out in the context of community. And we need that. You and I cannot grow up in our faith. We cannot become what God designed us to be without living in Christian community. Now, I'm really glad that you're here. It's important that we worship together. They gathered and worshiped and, and were under teaching every day. doesn't mean we need to do this every day, that we've got Bibles. So you can actually hear the teachings of Jesus without having to be here on a daily basis. But it's important that we do this regularly. But understand the severe limitations of what we do on Sunday morning. You're not sharing anything other than just your love for God and some handshakes, are you? There's no real sharing of lives in this context. It wasn't made for that. That's why we've modeled who we are as a church on what the first century church did. We're going to break up from here, but beginning next Sunday, you know, we're going to dive back into the cycle of small groups. On Sunday evenings and Wednesday evenings, we're going to gather in homes around the eastern shore. And there, we're going to eat together. We're going to regularly share the Lord's Supper together. We're going to spend extended time sharing what's going on in our lives and what God's teaching us and what He's saying and what we're wrestling with, praying for each other and spend time in Bible study together because every one of us desperately need an environment where we can let down our guard, take off the mask, not have to pretend like we've got it all wired together, be real about where we are and learn how to deal with life and marriage and children and struggles and faith and doubt and make progress together. And every single one of us need that. If you haven't tried a small group yet, it's not penicillin. It's not the cure for everything that ails you. But it will be a major help in life. 
If you haven't tried a small group, I want to encourage you to take that white card, fill it out, put it in the basket at the end of the service. Let us help you find a group to try because that's one expression of Christian community that's very tangible and real that is really healthy. And I want to encourage you in your group, go out of your way to pursue real intimacy, real honesty and openness. In our group this last year, that went to newer levels than it's ever been to before. And that's wonderful and hard and painful and and great all at the same time. As people just get honest about what's going on, but hold on to each other and help each other get past where they are. We all need that kind of community. And it takes a commitment of time. The fourth G is gifts. It's just a recognition that I have to set aside time and energy to regularly use my time and abilities to give back and serve others. You know, for centuries, the people who followed the one true God had a model where 1% of the people did all the ministry, 1% of the people did all the interaction with God, and 99% were spectators. That's the way it worked in the Old Testament. The priests and the prophets were the 1%, and everybody else was the 99%. Unfortunately, there are a bunch of people in the 21st century who are still living as if we were in the Old Testament. When Jesus came along, he blew that up. Jesus, with his life, death, and resurrection, you know, he tore down the veil and the need for there to be any separation between God and mankind. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit, when Jesus returned to heaven, and the call of Jesus for everyone, 100%, to become ministers, he totally blew up the the whole model of just the tiny little 1%, the priests and the prophets doing the real ministry, and everybody else being a spectator in a seat out there. He said, all of you, you are a kingdom of priests. All of you are ministers of the gospel. The bottom line in this is just so very simple. God has given you some really special gifts, strengths, passions, interests, and experiences that make you unlike everybody around you. And he wants you investing in a way that makes a difference in the lives of others. Now, it may be that there's an existing ministry of the church that you can plug into and give something back there. You may already be doing that. There are a bunch of different ways that you can do that. Some of figuring out where you serve can be like, do I enjoy working with children or teenagers or babies or grown-ups? Or do people freak me out and I'd be better off you know, doing technical stuff or helping with music, helping in the booth or something. Is hospitality your thing? It may not be that there's a ministry of the church that exists right now, but there's something that's on your heart that is a ministry that God would use you to start to make us more effective as the body of Christ. But the bottom line is what Peter said in 1 Peter 4, God's given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Have you found a place to serve? And if you haven't, would you be willing to explore that? I mean, starting now. And if you're just going, I don't know where that would be. I I may not have any idea or may have some idea, but I don't know where that could be plugged in and used. If you just want to talk with somebody about that, talk to your small group leader. Come talk to me. Talk to to Lee or Tate or Aaron or Philip or Sabrina. Talk to somebody and don't let that just be another of those things that you leave hanging. Because... Truth be told, there are still a bunch of people who are a part of freedom, but who haven't found a place to serve. And we will never hit on all eight cylinders until 100% of us have found a place to serve. The fifth and final 
G is this, good stewardship. If I'm going to simplify my life around the things that matter, the grace of God, entering into and walking in that grace, growing in knowing God and the voice of the Holy Spirit, um, living in, in groups in Christian community, and using my gifts to serve, all of those are huge, but it has to be undergirded financially. I have to be a good steward. Now I'm not going to go back and re-preach the whole message from two weeks ago. I will just tell you, if you weren't here, the five things that we talked about that you have to grasp. And I won't re-preach them. You can go back and listen to it online if you need to. But it starts with understanding that everything I have comes from God, not because I'm a hard worker or a smart guy. It all comes from God, so it all belongs to God. Understanding that it all comes from God allows me to live thankfully and to make a choice to live within God's provision. I'm not going to leverage a ton of debt to live beyond God's current provision level for my life. I've got to learn to live within that and to create some margin within that. And then choosing, thirdly, to demonstrate that all that I have is God's and at His disposal by giving the divine portion, the first tenth, the tithe, back to God on a consistent basis. And choosing to consistently save a portion of what I earn every week, every month, to prepare for emergencies, for my latter years, and for special opportunities for giving that God sends my way. And then finally, living as a good steward, always with an ear open to the voice of the Holy Spirit when he may say, Hey, you need to be generous here. Help this person out. Regardless of how much I've tithed or given at the church, on top of that, to just be a grace giver. Good stewardship. Prioritizing my life. So that I am a conduit that God can use to supply the needs of others. We'll close with the passage from 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul said, Remember, a stingy planter gets a stingy crop, but a lavish planter gets a lavish crop. I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and make up your own mind what you will give. Now, some people have twisted that and said, see, tithing isn't New Testament. Paul said, you need to just make up your mind what you're going to give. That's totally misunderstanding the passage. He was, he was taking a collection above the tithe to supply the needs of the people who were starving in Palestine because of a famine. And he was saying, on top of your normal tithes and offerings, I want you to give a grace gift. And you decide, you think about this and decide how much you want to give extra. And he says, this most generous God who gives seed to the farmer that becomes bread for your meals is more than extravagant with you. He gives you something so that you can then give away. That's a lot in one message, but at some point we need to take a step back and just examine our lives against the bigger picture of what does life need to look like. And of these five things, where do I need to give attention? You can't address all five of those today. So as we close, I just want to close with a real basic question. When you think through those five, where are you right now? Are you at the beginning point? That you need to receive the grace of God in your life. You don't have to go home and study up on that. The message is, is clear. Jesus has come and done everything necessary. Would you receive his grace? Would you receive his love and forgiveness today? You'll have a chance to do that. Are you growing? Are you seeking every day? To draw near to God, listening for His voice, and seeking to live by that. Do you need to engage in the disciplines that would help you to grow? 
Are you in a group? Are you experiencing Christian community? Are you in a small group? Are you in an accountable relationship? Are you somewhere that somebody is really getting to know you and helping you deal with the hard stuff and grow in your faith? Are you at the place you can say, yeah, I'm doing those things, but I haven't found a place to serve? Do you need now to say yes to sign the blank check? God, I'm going to serve. Help me find some place to give something back. Or is it that finances are the place that you need to engage, that you need to begin to practice the issues of good stewardship? Don't try and tackle all five at once. If there's one of those five that you need to deal with today, which one would it be? And would you join me as we take this to the Lord in prayer together right now? Father, we thank you for your grace and for your love. And I thank you that no matter how well our lives right now match up to those five things, I thank you that you are committed to moving us forward. And Lord, I pray that today, by the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would give real clarity. That if there are some here today in the room or watching and listening online who need to experience your grace and your forgiveness, that you would help them now to respond in faith. If today you realize, I don't think I've ever really received the grace and forgiveness of God. I don't know that that characterizes who I am and where I've been. Would you just pray a simple prayer with me in your heart? Would you just say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I want a relationship with you. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. And I'm asking you now, please forgive me. Please help me to be a different kind of person. You live your life in me. The best I know how, I surrender to you. Thanks for your grace and for your love and forgiveness. Lord, I thank you so much for how you consistently answer that prayer. For others of us who really need to grow by learning to respond to your voice or getting into community to begin to trust people or by serving with our finances, would you speak, would you give definition to what we need to address, and would you help us just to take the next step forward with your grace and power? We trust you for that, and we ask you for your help, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.